Please be seated. A few weeks ago, we began a series looking at John's letter to uh, the first, uh, first John, his first letter to the church in Ephesus, a church that he loved, a church that he had served as a pastor, uh, following after uh, both Paul and Timothy at different times, uh, a church that is a great reminder to all of us, both corporately, congregationally, and as individuals. Uh, that no matter how blessed we have been, no matter how strong and vibrant we have been at times in our spiritual life, uh, we all have ebbs and flows. The church in Ephesus was a clear example of that because as John is writing to them, this church that had been so strong, so vibrant, so effective, had been uh, diminished somewhat because of false teaching and a, a weakened faith. And John writes to them to remind them of his love and even more important uh, of what God's love is like, to remind them of the truth, which is the hope of their foundation. And as John declares in this letter that his goal is that the people might have joy that comes through fellowship with God. And as he also says, interwoven throughout this letter, that they might know what is eternal life and how to have eternal life. As we come to that this, this morning, John deals with that issue. He deals with it uh, directly, not only in the letter, uh, but he deals with an aspect of it as we look this morning in terms of how we might have the joy and through fellowship with God. As we look this morning, we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Before we come to the Word, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come with great thanksgiving to you, that you have cared to reveal yourself, to answer our questions, to remind us of your great love. We pray that as we commit ourselves to this time of studying in your word, that you would speak to us, that by the power of your spirit, you would be alive and at work within us, that you would open our hearts to be like fertile soil where the seed of your word would bear great fruit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus for every word of all of the scripture points to him, that you might bring renewal within us and remind us that it is by feeding on your word that we are strengthened and changed. For Jesus himself has declared that it is not by bread alone that we live, for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, just as we hunger and would not do long without feeding ourselves food, may we feed and feast even on your word that we have before us this morning. Bless it to nourish us and strengthen us and enable us to rejoice. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. The passage this morning begins uh, again in verse 1 of chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May the Lord give us blessing and understanding of his word. One of the more bizarre relationship stories that I have ever heard took place while we were living in Pittsburgh. Apparently, a 31-year-old man named Brian Jackson had become dissatisfied with his social life, more specifically his inability to get dates, apparently. And so he decided that he would change his game. and He assumed the persona of the Steelers' third-string quarterback, Brian St. Pierre. In one sense, if you think about it, it's not a bad plan. Nobody knows who third stringers are anyway, and so they're certainly not going to know what they look like. And so Brian St. Pierre, or no, Brian uh, Jackson went around town, bars or wherever he was going, and passed himself off as Brian St. Pierre, third string quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And apparently he wor- it worked because he had several dates and then finally met a particular woman that he decided he was going to commit himself to, and so he began dating her and her alone, and she dated him and him alone. And that relationship went on for several weeks. They saw more and more of each other, got involved more and more with one another's lives, and when he would spend time at her apartment or in their neighborhood, he would talk about his teammates. He would share autographs with uh, kids who would come and ask him uh, for autographs in, in her neighborhood. And then he would keep her aware of when there were an out-of-town game so that she wouldn't expect to see him on Friday and Saturday night. And he would, at least at one time, had encouraged her to watch the game because it should have been, it was a good, it was a really good game. And that began, became his downfall. <laughs> because in this game that she decided to watch, there was a period, a point in the game where the cameras did a close-up on the sideline during a timeout when the Steelers coaches were gathered with all of the Steelers quarterbacks in conference determining the situation and what they would do next. And while the camera was in on a close-up, one of the announcers began talking about each of the Steelers quarterbacks. As a close-up went on each one of them from their starter to the backup to the number three, Brian St. Pierre, it quickly dawned on this woman, that's not the same guy. (laughs) So why Brian Jackson was just kind of an average Joe, nothing ugly, but nothing particularly stunning. About five foot ten, average build. Brian St. Pierre, while not a great NFL quarterback, was quite a physical specimen, and apparently, as guys go, was uh, borderline, could have been a model as well. And so she looked at this, and she realized, this is not the same guy. That night, when he called what is, unbeknownst to him, his now ex-girlfriend, uh, Brian Jackson talked, and she confronted him with what she had found out. And he told her she was crazy. And she said, I watched the game. And he told her, I look different on TV. <laughs> there, sh- there should have been some other clues. Despite the fact that he had an NFL, um, NFL income, he never seemed to have any money. So she was paying for a lot of their dates. He even borrowed money for uh, his rent uh, one time. And he was, you know, but he was good for it because he was making NFL money. She did press charges. 
uh, the police came. He was arrested and charged with fraud. And as part of his plea, he was required not only to agree to pay back the money that he had taken from her fraudulently, but also to promise to never pose again as Brian St. Pierre. And apparently that was a promise that he kept to. Although there is a catch, apparently six months later, he was arrested again for going to different bars, no longer passing himself off as Steelers third-string quarterback Brian St. Pierre, but he upped his game and now was passing himself off as the Steelers starting quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger. <laughs> Who's six foot five, 245 pounds to Brian's five foot 10, 180. The story itself just can go in all different directions. One is, how nutty can some people be? How much audacity would somebody have that they would do this? And if there is a place where they're going to know what the third-string quarterback looks like, it's in Pittsburgh. Makes you wonder about the, the lady and how gullible some people can be. And I also think that it deals with some pertinent questions that not only that she was certainly asking herself, but in one way or another, most of us ask ourselves, and that John deals with in this letter. It's because no doubt at some point she began to ask herself, at least as she entered into whatever her next relationship was, is how do I know if the relationship I have is authentic, if it's real? Now, she had a relationship in a sense, but as she found out later, it was certainly lacking in authenticity. She did not have a relationship with the person she thought she had a relationship with, she did not have a relationship with the person that she said she had a relationship with. She found out that the guy that was posing himself was not the real thing at all. And because he passed himself off as something that he wasn't, whatever relationship that they did have was entirely fraudulent. And so while there was one sense of relationship most of us would recognize in a, in a greater sense, there was no relationship at all because it was based all entirely on a lie, misconceptions. In this passage, John deals with the question of how do we know whether we have a relationship and whether the relationship that we have is authentic. Because John's already been talking about the fellowship that we have with God through faith in Jesus Christ and the joy that that brings. But it's a universal question. How do we know if it's real? How do we know, even if it's possible to be real, that we have that relationship? Every world religion tries to answer the question of how to have the real relationship with God, at least the God that they profess belief in. What John addresses is what Christians believe about the relationship that we can have with the one true God, the God of gods. And it's an important question because there's confusion not only as people explore different world religions and realize that there seem to be different ideas as to how we authenticate that relationship. But even Christians sometimes are confused and maybe even deceived. I mean, Jesus doesn't help the issue at all in one sense when he talks to people who were claiming to be in relationship with him. And claiming to be in relationship with him, we're going out and doing a lot of good stuff in his name, including performing miracles in his name. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. 
Some of you who are crying out to me, Lord, Lord, and going out and doing things in my name, I don't even know you. The only way to characterize I don't know you is to say, no matter what you say, I don't have a relationship with you. And so it is confusing at times that there are people who actually would fill church pews that would assume they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they have that fellowship with God, and yet Jesus says, I, I don't know you. So how is it that we would under, know whether or not, one, the relationship was possible, and two, whether it's the real deal? And three, how we have that relationship. Now, John's clarified a couple of the things in, the, in this letter already because he's talked about and clarified, and he's in a position to know about whether Jesus is the real deal and whether fellowship is possible. John's writing this letter so that we can have the fellowship with God, and he says that Jesus is the real deal. He begins in chapter 1, and he says, look, he who was from the beginning whom we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands and heard with our ears, we come and we testify to you about him so that through him you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. So John is clarifying and declaring and saying, look, here's what God has revealed and that the Christian faith declares. Is it a relationship, a fellowship, an intimate relationship with, with God is possible through the person of Jesus Christ. And John says, and Jesus is the real deal. But it still leaves us the question, how do we know if we are in the real relationship? I don't know whether Brian St. Pierre is or was married at the time or not, but chances are at some point he's going to have a real relationship with somebody. It's just not likely to be with the crazy lady in Pittsburgh. The question that you and I need to clarify for our own understanding, our own benefit, and for the benefit of those who we hope to share in the fellowship with, is how do we know whether we have the fellowship with God? And in this passage, John helps us to uh, mark, shows us the evidence, what we need to look for and what we don't need to look at. First, I want to point out what I would say is, is a negative. It's a disclaimer that John says is not the measure. John tells us in this passage that the authenticity of our relationship, our fellowship with God, is not measured by the absence of sin. John's pretty clear about it. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. It's important that we get what he's saying here. He's not being light on sin at all, which is what some do when they claim grace, that God just, you know. John's, John's saying that the, the purpose, he doesn't, he's revealing these things to us. One of the keys to joy, one of the aspects of fellowship is that we realize that sin is, is horrendous. It's not something that is good for anyone. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. He's not taking it easy on sin. But then he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. It, it's, it's important for us to understand that kind of what John is saying here is that the presence of sin in your life is not a disqualifier in your relationship or fellowship with God. It's not. And John actually assumes that that's the reality. If we go back again into the first chapter and in verse 8, he says, if we say 
We have no sin. We deceive ourselves. Are you kidding yourself? And the truth of God is not in us. John knows that those who are in Christ and who have fellowship with God, we are still infected with the reality of sin in our lives. And he goes on and tells us that if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us, and he cleanses us from our sin. And so part of the fellowship with God, it necessitates our admission, our realization that we actually do have sin. Now, John is expecting us to see progress in this area. Again, he's saying, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. He's not simply suggesting that we abstain from sin. As if each, our lives is characterized simply by a series of choices. That's true. But there's more to our life than that. Sin is not simply the decisions. The sin that we talk about is sin, the actions that we engage in that become clear evidence of our sin. Those are decisions that are result from the condition of sin that is in our hearts, in our lives, affects our minds, our thinking. So John's not simply saying, I'm writing these things so that you'll know what sin is and so you'll just stop doing that. He's pointing that and he's reminding us that this is all tied to the promises of God, the power of what Christ is doing. It goes back to what he said in chapter 1, that when we confess our sin, he's faithfully just not only to forgive but to cleanse us. It's the whole concept in the scripture of not just stopping doing bad things, but putting sin to death, not just from our behavior, but from within our heart, that we take it to the cross. We recognize that we have been set free from it. John is very clear that the goal is that we would see progress in our lives. But we need to be clear that the presence of sin is not a disqualifier to our fellowship with God. And some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear that because you are all too aware of your struggle with sin. Whether it's evident in your behavior or not, you are aware of your thoughts and your attitudes. Some things that you know that you are true of you and you have struggled with and wish were not true of you and, and you're just frustrated because these same thoughts, attitudes, or even behaviors just keep coming back time after time such a degree that you may even ask yourself whether you truly are a Christian. Because it's easy to reason, if I was a Christian, wouldn't that be better? And you need to hear, the presence of sin in your life is not the disqualifier of the fellowship with God. Some of you need to hear this because you are exploring Christianity. You're seeking for something. And somewhere along the line, you've gotten the idea, probably from us Christians, the mark of Christianity is that we are somehow morally superior to all others. And that's how you know us, is that we're just better people. And some of you who have come to that idea that that's what Christianity claims to be, some of you realize that that's a bunch of baloney. And you're hesitant to embrace Christ because of the hypocrisy of God's people. Some of you may have bought that same baloney and you're hesitant to embrace Christ because it seems like you'll never be good enough. You need to hear that the authenticity of our relationship with God is not rooted in, in the absence of sin. The presence of sin is not the reason for the broken relationship. Some of you need to hear 
this because you are believers who have bought the rubbish. That being a Christian means being better than other people. And consequently, you're prone to judgmentalism, easily judging other people who don't measure up to whatever your moral standards are. John is pretty clear. The presence of sin is not a disqualifier in fellowship with God. What John does say is this, is that the authenticity of our fellowship with God is measured by the practice of heartfelt obedience. John's pretty clear about this as well. In verse 3, he says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And John goes on and illustrates that really for the the rest of this passage because he says in verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or being perfected. And what John seems to be saying there is that the mark of authenticity is the, the predisposition to keep God's commands. It's the understanding that we have a way of thinking, God has a way of thinking. It's the recognition that there are parts of our lives and our thinking that are not necessarily the same as God's thinking. And it's the realization if God thinks one thing and you think another, you've come to the conclusion God's the one who's right. And that you've therefore decided in advance that you need to conform your thinking, your standards, and your behavior, not to your inclinations and your feelings, but to what God has revealed through his word and then perfectly demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you are predisposed that to obey whatever it is that God has said, that is the evidence of belonging to him or an evidence that we belong to him. But one of the things that's important that we note here is that John says the relationship comes first. And we need to note that because many, many Christians, as well as non-Christians, get confused about that very thing. Many people live and struggle assuming if I obey, if these are what God said that I need to do, if I obey, then God will love me. Then God will be happy with me. Then God will accept me. If I obey, then I can have fellowship with God. And you're living in a way that is, if not trying to earn salvation, trying to live in a way that deserves or warrants the salvation that we are told comes as a free gift of God. Part of that salvation is the fellowship, the intimacy that we can have with God. The words that John describes about the relationship here deals with intimacy. The word to know is one uh, scholar, um, Simon Kistemacher, says it's really a metaphor for fellowship. And the word to know, there's many words to, uh, to know, but this particular in Greek deals with the kind of intimacy, very passionate intimacy intimacy, the intimacy that comes in marriage, the intimacy that is unique. John is saying, this is the fellowship, this is the relationship, this is the the way we know. But what John says is, we know, if we keep his commands, we know that we have come to know him if. Tense, the language reminds us that the obedience is a consequence, not a condition of that fellowship, that relationship with God. Have come to know comes first. And then the byproduct is that we then are obedient. 
it's important that we get that clear, both for our own lives and for our own peace, as well as for the way that we relate to the world around us. But we also need to realize that while John is saying that the evidence is obedience, we need to understand that John is not calling for just simple or mere obedience. I want to be very clear because apparently sometimes I'm not, at least on this particular issue. And I'm not alone. Because Camper gets the same question. I believe Ben gets the same question. I know Rob gets the same question. Because we talk about the basis of a relationship being so much on what God has done for us, his love. And that we have sinned. But that's not the, how the relationship is broken. Some have interpreted what, we're, what we teach or what I'm teaching is to say that obedience is not important. That would be wrong. John is saying it's very important. Obedience is always preferable to disobedience. But mere obedience is not what John is calling for because the reality is mere obedience is actually disobedience in disguise. Jesus is very clear about this. The Scripture is very clear about this. Jesus is talking about the two kinds of people in the world, and he gives the illustration of the two brothers. And he says there's one who is an older brother who was merely obedient, who did everything that he was supposed to do. And the father in the story doesn't deny that. And yet the older brother in that story, who was obedient in everything, had no love. Ironically, therefore, disobeying the commands to honor, to love your parents, to love your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. There's a disobedience that comes with mere obedience. Jesus confronted the Pharisees for that very thing. Nobody ever suggested that the Pharisees were outwardly disobedient. In fact, they were commended for their obedience. And when Jesus challenged them, he challenged them for, in essence, a hypocrisy, not so much in their behavior, but the disconnect between their behavior and their hearts. And when he challenged them about their behavior, he claimed to the, called them, you're like whitewashed sepulchers, the sepulcher being the, the grave marker. What he was illustrating with that point is to saying, you are clean on the outside. There seems to be no denying that. At least we're not going to debate that point because we're not going to get anywhere. So you're, you're clean on the outside. But the problem is with it inside, what is beneath the surface is rotting and decaying. And you don't even care because you're willing to be merely obedient and not heartfelt obedient. Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly as he's talking about the issue of lust, but he was ratcheting up to this point, whatever you think in your heart, that is a revelation of, what, of, of your life. And as he's talking about the issue, he says, so if somebody has lusted in his heart, they've already committed adultery. They're already broken. They're already sinful. And we may not be talking specifically about the issue of adultery, but Jesus would apply that to all aspects of our lives. And so mere obedient person does what they're required to do, but on the inside they may be grumbling or frustrated. And so I have a question for you. If you do what you're supposed to do, but you do it grumbling, what does that say about your attitude and your heart toward God? And since the commandment, as Jesus summarized it, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, that's an affection, all of your mind, that's the knowledge of who he is, what he's done, what he's commanded and the wise as far as it's revelation and with all of your strength, which is the obedience. What does it say about your attitude if you're merely obedient, but you are a grumbler? And then we're left with the question about 
John says, obedience to his commands. Which ones? I mean, is it most of them? Just the important ones? Just the one that either you are conditioned or predisposed to keep? I mean, it seems to be an important question. Because John doesn't say anything like that. He's saying, keep my commands. Jesus said the same thing. If you love me, you will obey my commands. It's important that we understand that when commands related to the law, what the Scripture describes the law as. The law is not a series, at least the law of God is not a series of bullet points that you keep. And if you violate one here, well, you violated one at one point, but you're still scoring pretty well. Scripture teaches us that the law is a whole. And if it's broken at one part, it's broken in its entirety. Imagine for a moment that there is an antique Chinese dynasty vase that's making its circles around museums around the country when it comes to town. You're interested in seeing this, the beauty of the artwork and this, this ancient artifact. And as you lean in, somehow you get a little closer than you think, you bump its table and the thing falls to the ground. Now that moment between the time you bump the table and while it's falling, before you're waiting for that crash as it hits the concrete or the marble floors, may seem like an eternity. But to your relief, when it hits the ground, you don't hear this shattering noise. It sort of bounces. The curator comes and picks this thing up, and while you are expecting this priceless treasure to have been entirely shattered, and you know that you can't possibly pay uh, for it, it pay, you don't have the resources to pay all of its value. He picks it up, and it's merely chipped a little bit in one corner. You may be relieved, but the curator is not. Because what was perfect, and what was beautiful, and what was valuable, though only dented in our estimation, is broken in its entirety, has lost its value, and no amount of superglue is going to allow you to put it back together. Jesus says, this is the law. And so if you are one who has demonstrated the fellowship you have with God and you want to demonstrate how much you love God and demonstrate to others how much you love God and you are prone to obey his laws, we need to ask ourselves, what about the ones we break? What about the ones that we don't keep? And realize that the scripture does say, if you broke it, you pay for it. That's the law of God. Whatever is broken must be paid for. When we've diminished God's glory, when we've stolen from God, to be forgiven, for the relationship to be restored, it's got to be paid for, and you and I do not have the resources. We're incapable of doing it. But that brings us to the heart of what John says. It's the good news, not only of this passage, but all of Christianity. John goes back, as we see at the beginning here, if you do sin... If you break the law at one point, but therefore violate the whole law, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, it's, Jesus is our defense attorney. We talked about this last week. He's the Matlock. He's the Perry Mason. He's whoever, I don't know what lawyer shows are on TV right now, but uh, so whoever's popular now. 
that is standing and making the case for you. As I shared last week, his case is not for those of us who struggle and fail over and over again. Your Honor, forgive him, he's an idiot. Have mercy. The case that John reveals is our defense attorney, our advocate, is standing before the judge and saying, the price has already been paid. My blood was shed. My body was crushed. That was the price that paid for what was broken. And if you are to inflict more punishment upon them, it is unjust. And so the judge, the father, declares us pardoned and purchased, and he purchased us himself. We have an advocate who loves us far more than we understand, and not for the reasons that we think. It's not because we're such great catches. He loves us because he loves us. And he stands in our defense, and the word that is used about him, the word propitiation, he is our propitiation, carries a lot of weight and importance for us to understand. What I just talked about, the word propitiation we tend to think of our salvation, talk about it in terms of our forgiveness. And that's correct. But the word propitiation also carries with it even deeper meaning. Because it reminds us, it tells us something about God. It tells us something about our God's attitude about sin. And it tells us something about our salvation. The word propitiation means that his satisfaction was made for the wrath of God. It's not just that God says, Okay, you didn't mean it. You promised to do better. I'll, I'll forgive you. I'll swallow that debt. Justice won't allow that. And so what is broken has to be paid for. But in the cross, when Jesus gave himself up for it, he made satisfaction. We are pardoned. We are forgiven because satisfaction was made. It tells us about sin that God will not overlook it. And so I'm not playing simple with sin by saying that's not, going to, that's not the basis of our fellowship or the presence of sin is not broken. It is serious, but God's love for us is cleansing us from it so that we will die more and more to it, so that we will make the progress. God says it is serious business, but Christ has paid that for us, which points to the fact that the salvation that we have that allows us to be in fellowship is marked by fellowship with God is not cheap but tremendously costly some people struggle with that thinking it sounds kind of like a, a cheap grace and a cheap message that if sin doesn't prevent us from having the relationship with God the presence of sin in our life is not, it's just not the basis that doesn't break the fellowship with God. Then what motive is there for us to holy living, to live and to die to sin? British theologian John Stott beautifully reminds us when he says, the same cross, which is the ground of free salvation, is also the most powerful incentive to holy life. And it's true. The love that is demonstrated by God for you, such cost and detail and significance, will break, melt, and then mold the heart of anyone but the most warped 
Anyone who is in a relationship, in a marriage that is strong, that's secure, you've been forgiven much, you're loved more than you deserve. When you think about that love, is not going to entice you to say, hey, I'm loved in this way and I'm forgiven. I'm free to do whatever I want. I can cheat, I can go away. I mean, who would do that? A heart like that is still selfish and bound up in itself, but to the one who understands how much they have been loved, how much God has demonstrated his love for you, what Christ has done to show that love, when you understand that love, the response that we have in being loved in any relationship is to want to bring pleasure and joy and honor to the one who's loved us despite ourselves. And the same is true in relationship with our God. That it is not his grace that leads us away, but his grace that leads us to want to obey. And that's what John is saying here in verse 5. Whoever keeps his word is truly the love is God is is, is, um, is perfected, is being perfected. In other words, when you've seen the love of God and you're responding to the love of God by predisposition to be obedient, just as a demonstration of response to his love, you will be shaped. And God at work in you. Let me wrap it up with this. I read that a few years ago there was a painting that was found in Germany that had, was considered to be very valuable but, and was attributed to a 19th century German artist. But then there were some suspicions that it may not have actually been painted by that artist, but it might actually have been painted by Leonardo da Vinci in about year 1500. And so art authenticators decided to put the painting to a test. Time magazine describes the process this way. The authentication was based on physical evidence using a high-resolution, multi-spectral camera capable of analyzing the painting on a precise level without touching it. Canadian forensic artist expert was able to identify a faint fingerprint left on the canvas. The print then was matched to the one known da Vinci uh, painting uh, in the Vatican City. And then carbon dating uh, of the new campus matched to the painting to da Vinci's time. The analysis of the style concluded the painter was left-handed, another mark of da Vinci. And then taken all together, the clues built a convincing argument that the painting actually was that of Leonardo da Vinci. The reason that that is significant is what John tells us is that if you have a predisposition to heartfelt obedience, it is an indicator of the fingerprint of God upon your life. Taken with the fact that you acknowledge that you are a sinner and have no other hope but to trust in what Jesus Christ has done with you, done for you, the evidence begins to mount up that you can have reason to believe the relationship that you have is authentic with the authenticated God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that the promises that John has made here 
are true for you. You can have joy because you have fellowship. That God is at work in you. That he who began this work is perfecting you because he will see it through. That's how we know whether we have fellowship, a real fellowship with our God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you yet again that you have not left us to speculate. But through your servant John, you have revealed to us the marks of authenticity. I pray this would be a great comfort to those who are struggling, great encouragement to those who are seeking, and a source of renewal for those who are self-righteous. But in the end, I pray you would bring us all together in the joy of the fellowship that we have with God, cemented by the blood of Jesus Christ that cannot be broken. Lord, we thank you for what you have done through Jesus. In him we pray.